So Money episode 349, Sally Krawcheck. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wix.com. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 75 million people worldwide. Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer made customizable templates to choose from the drag and drop editor and even video backgrounds. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. The site empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Getting over a cold, it's just one of those seasons, I guess. And also the fact that I I do have a toddler living with me and he does tend to hang out with other toddlers. And so my husband and I are constantly um, buying Kleenexes and cough drops. I apologize for my little bit of a raspy voice today, but I cannot express just how excited, how honored I am to have with us today a very special guest, someone I've wanted to have on the show from before I even you know, was live with so money. I, I always had this like running wish list of guests and she was at the top and now she is here. Sally Krawcheck. Do you know Sally Krawcheck? If you don't know Sally Krawcheck, you need to know Sally Krawcheck. Um, maybe if you don't work in the world of finance, you don't follow business news regularly, you may not have come across her name, but she is a force in this industry. Right now, she's the CEO and co-founder of Elvest. And Elvest is a soon-to-be-launched digital investment platform for women. And to me, Sally has always been the ultimate pioneer for closing the gender wage gap and women's rights in the workplace. And with Elvest, which is really trying to do is close the investment wage gap. Sally is on a very public and professional mission right now to help women reach their financial and professional goals. How can you not love that? She's also the chair of Elevate Network, a global professional women's network with thousands of members and growing, and I'm a member. Sally serves as the chair of the PAX Elevate Global Women's Index Fund, which she recently launched. It invests in the top-rated companies for advancing women. And now before becoming an entrepreneur, she was the CEO of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management and Smith Barney. So she knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And we want to talk about the gender wage gap. We want to talk about uh, how women invest differently. We also discuss her own financial failures because she's had some and she is very generous with going down memory lane and giving us those stories to help us avoid the same mistakes. Elvest is also a really exciting venture. She has a website for us that she mentions during the conversation that we can go to to try it out and experience it firsthand. So without further ado, here's my hero, 
Sally Krawcheck. Sally Krawcheck, welcome to So Money. It's a new day for this podcast. I feel like we are really elevating the conversation now. We finally have you on the show. I've been I've been hoping to have you on for so long. You're my one of my dream guests. So thank you so much for sharing Aww. your time with us. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. You've been making quite the headlines recently. Um, <laughs> Is that fair to say? I, oh, you know, you, I sort of figure you live one life. If you're not trying to make headlines, what what else, right? That's a great that's a great <laughs> strategy. And and I'm specifically mm-hmm. referring to one excerpt that I, I came across in the New York Post. Uh, you were on the Betty Lou podcast, and, and Betty's a mm-hmm. friend of, of this podcast as well. She was on the show, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you were recounting your 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 exit from Bank of America. This was. I was, mm-hmm. what year was that? 2010? It was a lot. It was a while ago. Um, I think it was 2011. 2011. Right. And it was a very public departure. And your quote was that it felt like a random act of violence. You felt that mm-hmm. things were going great. It was, um, you know, you, you, the business was growing. Mm-hmm. Your noses were clean, as you said, no scandals, but you got mm-hmm. reorganized out. Why do you feel it's important to share that story now? And, you know, this was about five years ago. So how mm-hmm. has your perception of that maybe changed? It, you know, it can be very personal at the time. Right. I've been laid off. And when I felt like my nose mm. was clean too. But um, for you, how are you reflecting mm-hmm. on this now? Why why share this story? Well, you know, it's funny. The, the real reason I shared it is because Betty asked. Um, and so I was happy to share it with her. And then in, and I have to tell you as an aside, in one of these only in New York moments, a few days after it ran, I remember I saw it in the paper and I said, geez, Louise, you know, this happened, as you pointed out, five years ago. Um, I can't believe it's in the New York Post. And then a few days later, only in New York, I actually ran into the CEO of the New York Post and, uh, had never met him before. And, and we, I sort of teased him about it. But I do think what it shows is there continues to be this fascination with failure. And how do, how do you pick yourself up? What's it like? What's it like to be reorged out publicly? How do you cope with it? How do you work through it? Which is exactly why I do talk about it. Particularly for us females, I've found that the idea of failure is so cloaked in shame. Um, I had a friend who got fired not so long after I was reorged out, and we went to breakfast, and she spent... 70 minutes telling me almost blow by blow how she didn't get fired. That's how much shame she had about it. Everybody knew she'd been fired. And I didn't care at all, but we wasted that breakfast going through it. And so the reason I talk about my public stumbles is because it happens. It happens to everybody. Maybe it's in the New York Post. Maybe it's in the Wall Street Journal. Maybe it's just something that's happening in your own world. But the shame around it, we need to get rid of it. And that's why when I talk about it, I'm pretty clear, too, that it can happen to you when you least expect it. It can happen to you when things are going right. And that one, in a way, was an affront to the way I was brought up. The way I was brought up, you work hard, you get an A, you you advance, you move on, do play by the rules, do the right things. And it was such a surprise to me. In some, way, in some ways, it wasn't because I knew the CEO. I knew I wasn't on that inner circle. I'm not an idiot. I could, I could tell. Um, but in some ways, I kept telling myself and my team, 
deliver the results, put in place a strong budget, beat the budget, do business the right way, grow the business, et cetera. And on the day I was invited to leave, I think, or I know, ours was the only business that was growing and we were gaining share. And so there was a sense of you got to be aware that sometimes even when you're doing everything right, you can stumble and you can get booted out. And that's just the way the economy goes these days. That's just the new way of doing business. Do you think the public is more fascinated by female leaders and their stumbles? I'm looking now at, for example, Marissa Mayer. Ever since she stepped into Yahoo, I feel there's mm-hmm. there was like people were looking at the time clock. You know, they're like, it's only yeah. a matter of time yeah. before she's going to fail. And I wonder if that scrutiny is disproportionate to women. What do you think about that? Do you think sure. that your public departure was so public and so discussed because you were Sally Krawcheck and not Sam Krawcheck. It's funny you you say that. So a couple of a couple or a few thoughts. First of all, there is something about the law of small numbers. When there are few of anything, those few are just more interesting and fascinating. I mean, think about it, right? Oh, there are a million folks who look just like this, who have this kind of resume, this kind of background, are doing this kind of thing. A million of them. Let's talk about number you know, 232,467. That's of no interest. Can you imagine? No interest. No interest. You're in the, you, you understand the press. If you're one of something, now that is fascinating. And so it's so funny you bring this up because it wasn't two days ago that I actually said to my team here, somehow the financial crisis came up. One of the, um, one of the individuals on the team mentioned Aaron Callen, who, as you'll recall, was the CFO of Lehman and got flame broiled during the day. Downturn. And I turned to the team and I, and I said, they flame broiled her in part because Lehman went under, uh, but in part because she's a woman and someone. No, no, no. I said, okay, name a single male CFO of a Wall Street firm in the financial crisis. Name one. And nobody, of course, could. So there is that interest that occurs. And it can be a bummer. Um, I had a group of women together on a panel for Elevate Network. That's so long ago, senior women, everyone had a story about the press talking about what they wore, talking about their shoes, you know, you know, damning them with faint praise, et cetera, et cetera. It can be a bummer. The other way of looking at it, which let's not forget, is it can be a positive, too, um, to bring attention to something that's important, to bring attention to a cause, to bring attention to a business. This is not all a negative. I used to think back in the day as a research analyst, as one of the very, very few females, I wasn't, people were going to remember me. Now, if I had poor research, it'd be remembered in a bad way. But you did have that advantage of being one of a few that you stood out more. One of the things that you've been advocating and championing recently publicly is the gender wage gap as well as the gender Mm -hmm. investment gap, retirement gap. We're going to get to all of that soon. I really want to dive into that with you. But personally, Sally, how did you try to narrow the the wage gap for yourself as a woman rising the ranks on Wall Street? (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. I never even thought about it that way. Um, I just did it, I guess, because I was one of only one or two females at my level at every point in time. Um, I didn't sort of know that, hey, gosh, I better not negotiate for a raise because none of the women are. I wouldn't even have conceived of that. Um, so I asked for the money and wouldn't have imagined not asking for the money. Now, I actually found it 
harder intuitively to negotiate like a guy did. In fact, that fellow who was my mentor slash sponsor when I started out as a research analyst, every six months he would work himself up into this enormous ladder, enormous ladder. And he would bound into our director of research's office, threaten to quit, ask for more money, bring in a job offer. Just seemed like a lot of energy. Uh, I just wasn't able to get myself so angry all the time. I actually was really happy. So, But I, I saw the behavior being modeled as if you don't ask, you don't get. And so would, just as a matter of course, once a year, make sure to sit down with my boss, talk about what our goals had been for me that year, um, whether he and I agreed that I had met them or fallen short or exceeded them, and had the conversation about money. Now, one thing I will tell, particularly your female listeners, um, it was so hard for me to do that I would blotch so badly on my neck oh. that my director of research used to ask me if I was okay. I mean, so here I was trying to be very professional and very fact-based, and then I would, I would just turn bright red. So turtlenecks. I, that's I what think, turtlenecks are I was for. Gonna, that's exactly what I was going to say. I used, to, I had to wear turtlenecks <laughs> in a day when you just really didn't wear turtlenecks in the office. But that's how I got through it. But I just did it. I just did it. And that's when you knew Sally was going in for the big money that day. She was wearing a turtleneck. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps I hadn't thought of it that way. I was, um, in a conversation one time with Barbara Corcoran, you know, Barbara, mm-hmm. she and oh, I were, sure. we were being interviewed about why aren't there more women running hedge funds? Why aren't there more mm-hmm. female CEOs of investment firms? And Barbara just said it point blankly, those jobs are horrible. You know, if you're a woman who's interested also in having balance and maybe not even balance, but just having also a family, having also a personal life, those jobs make it really hard to do that. And and it's just not attractive. And she goes, that's why more mm-hmm. women are starting their own businesses do you feel like that's a fail proposition now to say like, as a woman, you should pursue a career in finance. You're, you can have it all if you do that. Because the truth is you, mm. you really can't. And if you mm. try to, it's, it's, it's like you're, it's an uphill battle, at least the way things are today. Mm. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think we have to be a little careful about, um, the broad brushes because finance is, is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of different jobs. Um, so investment banking. I was an investment banker in my 20s. I was a mediocre investment banker. I actually left when I became pregnant with my son uh, and looked around and I was just sick as a dog and didn't like it and didn't want to jump on the plane on short notice and have to fly to Dallas without having a suitcase. I just didn't like it. So I left it and I thought that's not whether it's a work-life balance thing or anything. It's just not the life I want to live. Being a research analyst, being in the wealth management business, those two businesses, really quite the opposite. So I have never worked as hard, except for right now, um, as I did as a research analyst, a what we call a sell-side research analyst. So I would analyze companies, write up research reports on them, share them with uh, investors, the investors who you know are investing money for your listeners out there. Um, I worked very hard, but I had all kinds of flexibility. And the reason I had all kinds of flexibility, I was writing research. And so there wasn't a portfolio manager, an investor on the planet who would ask me 
before they'd read my research, was this written in the office or did you write this at home mm-hmm. after your infant was asleep on Sunday night? Nobody cared, obviously. It was also very metrics-based. And so, as I mentioned earlier, my boss and I would sit down and what did we want to achieve, right? Did my recommendations go up, my not rec- you know, my cells go down, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And no client owned me. Because you have so many clients, you don't have to jump up and down for one client, which you have to do in investment banking. Same with wealth management, the, um, you know, the asset management, the Merrill Lynch's, the Smith Barney's that, that I had responsibility for and ran. Financial advisors in those businesses can set their own hours. And so a lot of them will work at, you know, go out to a dinner with a client at nine o'clock and may, you know, in the morning take their kid to school. So I think you have to be sort of parsed through the different jobs. Now, frankly, they're not enough women in either research or wealth management either, but it's not because of that balance. I have other reasons for it. I think it's because the industry has done such a poor job of branding itself as being um, an industry that enables you to not only make a living, but to have a real impact on people's lives. Both of them do, but you don't think about that when you think about those businesses. And women really look for that in their mm-hmm. job. You've already mentioned your mentor a couple times now. How uh, can young women in any industry identify the real mentors that are going to help them? And I find that for me, some of the most important mentors I've had have been men. Um, and, and, and so does it matter if it's a female or a male? Should you lean towards getting advice from, cause I think it's important to get the female perspective. Um, but what, what's your take on mentorship and how young people can find and identify those people that will ultimately help them get, help them advance in their careers? Right. Right. Well, both are so important, and we're having such an interesting conversation in this country about mentors and sponsors. So mentors being those people who will advise you, answer your questions, and so on, and sponsors being those individuals who will not only do that, but will fight for you. And so the gentleman I've mentioned earlier both answered my questions, but read my research, critiqued my research, and then very importantly, was in the room fighting for me to get promoted. And my first promotion back at Sanford Bernstein, where I was a research analyst, my first real promotion happened when I was six months pregnant, five months pregnant with my daughter. Wow. Crazy. Almost to the point where I wanted to say, do you do realize? And of course they did because I was humongous at the time. There's no going so, back. <laughs> there, with the, I know. I said, and I said, well, aren't you worried? And actually, I literally said to my boss, aren't you worried I won't come back from maternity leave? He said, I'm not worried at all. But anyway, so the you, an individual should have both. Um, an individual should have male mentors and sponsors and female mentors and sponsors. For us as females, it, and for both genders, it's just, there's some things it's just easier to discuss with your own gender. If you go up to a 60-year-old dude and try to talk about work-life balance, he's going to look at you like you came in, you know, off of the spaceship from Mars. So there are different topics that you're going to be feel, feel comfortable discussing with different folks. And, and I would say that diversity should extend to people inside your company and outside your company. Those inside the company can fight for you. Those outside the company can advise you in a, in a different kind of way. Now, in particular for women, I um, had so Sylvia Hewlett from the Center of Talent Innovation um, over here uh, about a week ago. And she always, she does the most interesting research and always brings interesting research. And she was telling me when she was here that women today have three times as many mentors as men to the people who answer the questions. So we're really good at finding those people to answer our questions, but half as many sponsors. So 
we don't have nearly the people fighting for us. Mm-hmm. Likewise, um, I've read elsewhere that men tend to have mentor and sponsor circles that are mostly male. Women tend to be mostly female. That's okay, except the guys still are more in a position of power, so we need to mix it up a bit and have both. But finding those mentors, absolutely. Finding those sponsors, even more important. How do you do it? Invite people to coffee, ask them questions. And I would also say recognize you're really bringing something to the table. I think the way we talk about this, it sounds as though you're sort of sucking these people dry. Well, if you're 28 years old, if you're 25 years old, if you're 35 years old, Think about what you can bring to someone who's in their 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what Snapchat is. I promise you, they have no <laughs> idea. I mean, they, they, I don't know what Snapchat barely... is. I'm 35. I mean, I know, but I'm actually my my assistant is going to give me a tutorial this afternoon They're on exactly. Snapchat. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, heck, some of my buddies who I've been in business with for years aren't even on friggin' LinkedIn. Like, get <laughs> with the program. So there's no I, for them. You know when. When I was mentoring some younger women, they were really teaching me not just about social media, but about entrepreneurialism, raising money. So I would recognize that you bring something to the table too. be clear on what that is and share too. just don't think of it as a one way street. Well, speaking of entrepreneurship and raising money, you've reportedly raised about 10 million in funding to start Elvest, which is a digital investment platform for women. Why did you want to do this? And And why do women need something catered to them? Why can't women just go to the Charles Schwab's and Prudential's and Fidelis of the world? Oh, so you're going to blame the victim. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, you know, I I argued for a long time women didn't need any kind of offering for them because there's so much out there. But facts are stubborn things. And women today are significantly underinvested in comparison to men. That's not true in the workplace, 401k plans. It is true outside the workplace. And the numbers around this are startling um, and disturbing, uh, which is that if uh, a woman has got her money in a bank account, a guy has got his money invested in a diversified investment portfolio, that woman is ending up hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, millions of dollars behind the guy at the time of retirement. The numbers are astonishing because of the compounding impact of earning, let's say, a 5% return annually versus a 1% or today close to zero. As a result of this, so what really hit me for this, sort of the, the real underlying reason behind it is, is one day I was putting on my mascara in my bathroom, getting ready for work, and realized that the retirement savings crisis in this country which is so big and so ugly, we've, we've really stopped talking about it. And because all the solutions are so hideous, tax increases, entitlement cuts, as I was sitting there, I realized it's a woman's crisis. It's a woman's crisis. We live five plus years longer than guys do look at in a nursing home in this country is 80 to 85% female. And we retire with two thirds of money men. Part of that is the gender pay gap. Part of it is that we take more career breaks than men do because of maternity leaves and so on. But part of it is what I just talked about, which is the gender investing gap, which we just don't talk about in this country. So rather than say, Hey ladies, you know, there are offerings out there for you. Just go um, invest like a man, for goodness sake. Wait a minute. This is about the last industry in which we don't recognize that tailored offerings can really make sense. The other thing that really bothers me here is that this 
issue of women under investing gets boiled down to in these dated 1957-ish um, messages we receive that women are bad at math. Not true. We make better grades than guys do at school and as good or better in math that we need more financial education to invest. Well, everybody needs more financial education, but the guy, it doesn't stop the guys from investing or then investing sort of a manly man thing. Women, in fact, are better investors than men. As good or better, this is true in the professional level, whether it's a hedge fund manager or a mutual fund manager, not that there are enough of them. And it's also very true at the individual investor level. So we've got these messages that come at us that tell us we're sort of dopes, um, which just aren't true from, from, you know, all sorts of media sources and the industry and so on. Now, there are tons of great financial advisors that do a great job with women, but the numbers are, and I know, most of them, if not all of them, they're fantastic, but they're not enough. And so we still have the gender investing gap. And and finally, I just said, if not me, who, right? If I'm not going to do it, who the heck else is going to do it? Because remember, you and I already talked about there aren't a lot of women who ran Merrill. I did. There aren't a lot of women who ran Smith Barney. I did. Um, there aren't a lot of women who've been in these positions who can understand the industry and understand that how, that investing um, science, bring in the technology, and then think about the problem in a fundamentally different way, because what we're doing right now isn't working. What do you mean by tailored offerings? I suspect a lot of this will also yeah. have to come with a dose of advocacy, because what you just told me, all these false falsisms, these false messages can really impact your psychology and your perception of reality. So how does El- Elvest... What are the offerings mm-hmm. specifically? If you could share an example, that would be to your point. Yeah, well, so we haven't launched yet, so we're keeping it pretty under wraps. But for your uh, listeners, they can sign up for early access at access at elevest.com, E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T dot com. But, uh, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, watch some of the... the um, the TV shows on investing, um, what do they remind you of? They remind you of ESPN. They remind you of sports programming. Mm-hmm. Um, how many, you know, that's male. Um, think about how the industry positions its success. It can be and is about outperforming the market, doing well when the euro outperforms the yen. Are these conversations you're having with the women you know? Um, and so I sort of think about, you know, the, the buying of a car that for, you know, a guy buys a car, he goes in, he loves to haggle and negotiate. He loves the art of the deal when he bring, he loves to know all the details about the car, right? What are the pistons and the end? I don't even know the words. And, and a woman walks in and wants a more streamlined, more straightforward experience. Neither good, neither bad, just different, right? The research is clear, just different. And it's so interesting because we've taken that thinking and we've applied it to any, you know, any level, any number of different scenarios. Um, but we just haven't taken it to investing. And many of the firms out there, you might say to me, well, so-and-so has an, you know, has this newsletter for women and so-and-so has this. But what I found is that so much of that boils down to the, the Wall Street and investing firms have really posed the question themselves as being one of how can we market to women? How can we market to women? Not, wait a second, are there some changes we can make to fundamentally serve women? And that's what we're doing. And what's so interesting about it is it's not just my point of view. We're actually co-creating it with 
women who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, hundreds of women we've spent time with going through what works for them, what doesn't work for them. Um, and so stay tuned because I'm happy to come back on and talk about yes. what we found as soon as we're ready to share it. It's fascinating stuff. Well, I think the timing is so right. And you, you already have a built-in audience here at So Money. We want to we wanna test drive this for you if we can and give you feedback. Sal, you majored in journalism and had a second major in poli-sci, right? Yeah, Was that back right? in the day. I did a little digging. <laughs> did. So how, how did that lead you to, to Wall Street? I, I want to go down memory lane Crazy. a little bit and, and understand where your, head, where your head was at back in the day and, and maybe why you were fascinated by this industry to begin with. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, it? It wouldn't automatically lead one from one to the other. And the bottom line is when I was graduating from um, University of North Carolina in 1987, the job offers were either journalism, newspaper, write the obituaries, literally make $12,000 a year, or the industry that was hiring at that point in time like mad was Wall Street. And you make $31,000 a year, which, you know, by those standards is a fortune and moved to New York. And so as I was talking to my father about this, he forbid me from moving to New York. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. I went to school at UNC. No. So, of course, I only then looked to move to New York. And uh, it ended up in my thinking was that I would go for a couple of years, learn business, and then come back and be a journalist. Um, and that, of course, didn't happen. But what did happen is that the skills of journalism combined with the skills of being an investment banking analyst combined to be a research analyst, which is writing analytics, dealing with um, smart individuals, and really sort of combined the two. So it was a great path forward for me. Now, there was lots of rockiness in between because, as you noticed, I said, I... Um, you know, I came to Wall Street in 1987, literally six weeks before the market crash of 87. It actually is so funny. I was thinking the other day, my brother, my brother was a senior at Chapel Hill and ended up on the friggin' floor of the New York Stock Exchange on the day of the crash, like oh Forrest gosh. Gump. He's like Forrest Gump. And I remember Run. he came back and he said, he said, boy, it's busy there. And I said, well, duh, brother, Johnny. Yeah. Run, Johnny. Run. <laughs> It's the crash. Um, so funny. But it's also, I guess, mm. well, as, as tumultuous as, the, as that period was, it didn't, um, it, it, it made you maybe even a little bit more fascinated, right? With the, with the whole system. The whole, the whole. Well, it, it didn't, didn't. I don't think I really realized what was going on. I'll tell you what it did, though, which is an interesting lesson. It made me more risk averse. There, you know, for your listeners, I'm sure they know about this idea of anchoring, which is the first experience you have looms much larger than subsequent experiences. And so I really just viewed crashes as things that could happen, uh, which tended to make me more risk, uh, risk aware. And for so many of your listeners, having come of age, um, and being aware at the time of the subprime market crash and crisis 0708, you know, it can keep people in a crouched defensive position, which is good sometimes, but over the long run has shown not to be the most effective way to grow capital. Man, I wish I had you for like three hours, Sally. I have like a thousand questions for you. And I think I would love to ask you some more questions that I ask a lot of my guests on the show now. It's kind of where 
a lot of listeners like to turn on the volume here. It's what is your number one financial failure? We asked this of all the guests. You know, people might have seen your departure from Bank of America as a public failure, but to you, maybe Mm -hmm. it wasn't a failure. So what personally, what's something that you can identify as this was a financial failure and here's how I worked my way through it? Well, I don't know that I worked my way through it. Um, My biggest, most costly failure was right before that market crash of 0708. Um, I remember meeting with my financial advisor. Now, I had no idea that the crisis was coming, but I, as mentioned, was pretty risk aware, talking risk, thinking risk. And I remember, so I was working in city at the time. I was running Smith Barney at the time, um, living in New York at the time and sat down with my financial advisor and said, what happens if there's a market correction? And we looked at my investment portfolio and we stress tested it. And said, what would happen if the market went down 30, 40, 50, 57% as it did? Not that we actually got that to the exact numbers, but that kind of, that kind of correction. We looked at the portfolio and said, whoo, ugly, no fun, bad, bad afternoon, but okay. Um, what we failed to do was to continue the train of thought. So what we didn't do, was look and say, okay, what would happen to the stock of the bank I was working at where I had invested stock mm-hmm. if there was a market correction of that size? Well, guess what? We found out the answer. And the answer was that the stock would go from $52 to less than one. Ugh. Now, that was actually my biggest asset. It wasn't my investment portfolio. So it's major fail. Well, w- let's stop for a second. What happens to my employment possibilities if that occurred? Well, we know what happened there too. Out of a job. What happens to my husband, who's also in financial services? What could happen to the real estate? So we we had built up a, a portfolio at the time, and what we really didn't realize was everything was pointing in the same direction. And that was completely fine when things were going up, but it was not so fine when things were going down. So what I would urge your listeners to ask themselves is this question, which is not just do I have stocks and bonds in my portfolio and what will happen to them, but... Am I a stock or a bond? Hmm. What happens to me? What happens to me? Because for most of your listeners, their biggest asset is not their investment portfolio. Their biggest asset is themselves. Put in financial terms, their biggest asset is the net present value of their future earnings. So for to take an example that's not me, if you are a tech startup person, your future earnings could be quite high. It also could be quite volatile. You probably, you're going to want to have a more conservative investment portfolio. If, on the other hand, you work for a utility company, your earnings are going to be pretty stable over time. You will work for the government. They're going to be pretty stable. So you can afford to take more risk on your investment portfolio. So my biggest mistake was stopping the analysis before I got to my biggest assets, which were my, the stock and my job. Right. Yeah, a little short-sighted perhaps, but you're right. That's kind Dumb. of the conventional Dumb. wisdom. It's the conventional mm-hmm. wisdom. And I'm I'm not happy, but it does make me feel better to know that someone like Sally Krawcheck at your level also wasn't able to foresee the demise of the markets, that this was truly something that in many ways crept up on us. Although, you know, the, there were some guys like from the big short 
<laughs> who knew it was going to happen? But they they're all they're always some guys, you know. Maybe next time they should tell everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the truth is, they're always some guys. I mean, remember, yeah. you know, to go back to '87, Elaine Garzarelli foresaw the crash of '87, mm-hmm. um, but then she didn't foresee the next, the next, and the next. So they're always going to be some folks who see it. But the truth is, it's you know, a successful invest- investment strategy is not based on being the one who sees it. It's by really staying, getting in and staying in and averaging into the markets over time. All right, Sally, let's do some really quick rapid fire. So money fill in the blanks. This is when I start a sentence and you finish it and then I'll be sad to say goodbye, but um, I thought this would be fun to squeeze in. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won Powerball, a hundred million bucks. The first thing I would do is keep doing what I'm doing. I would invest it into Elevest um, and to growing that business uh, right away. And I'd be right back here tomorrow morning. The one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is delivery services. Yes. It's the different it, it's the difference but when I this isn't very rapid fire, but when I was younger, I remember living in New York, my sister-in-law living in Atlanta, I got everything delivered. Um, and she spent her weekend driving around the suburbs, picking up dry cleaning and so on. And I knew I, I knew I was going to make it through and I knew she was going to end up quitting. So it's the delivery services. Do you ever think about what your time is worth? And when you make when you when you think about outsourcing, there's actually yeah, an equation. Not, there is an equation which I've never used. Um, but my, the most valuable thing each of us has is their time. And we need to be really rigorous about it and learn to say no much more than we do. How about this? My biggest splurge, something that I spent a lot of money on, and I, I'm, I maybe are a little guilty about it, but you know what? You don't care. You, you love doing it. The real, real. I love spending time on that site and buying real, gently real. used designer. You, do you know the real, real? I don't know the real, real. Yeah. Teach me. This, oh my gosh. Go. I, they should start paying me commission, <laughs> by the way. So this is a designer real resale site. Oh you gotta gosh. go I'm on. on there I'm right buying now. most. You gotta go. You gotta go. By the way, I'm buying most of my clothes from there, and then I resell them there too. You got. I'm telling you. So Sally Kershaw buys consignment. Yeah, all the time. I'm financially savvy. Know. Good to know. All right. Um, one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is it does not have to be a source of conflict. It was the only thing my parents fought about, mm. um, and getting it to a place where you don't have to fight about it is worth a lot. Have you ever fought about money in your in your personal life? Has it has it did that ever actually come to fruition? Yeah, now we can't do rapid fire on yeah, this. I know. This part of the, it's, chapter you know two. what? It's really part of the reason I kept working. I just I saw the I saw that it was the only thing my parents disagreed on. And th- I'm telling you the fights, sorry mom and dad if you're listening, the fights were so big the kids would hide under the bed. Oh. And I thought, never, never, never. So no, I don't. I don't. I can kind of relate to that too. Mm. Um, how about this? When I donate, I like to give to blank because? Uh, causes to support women and children because the ripple effect is so significant and so positive. And last but not least, I'm Sally Krawcheck and I'm so money because? I'm so money because I've um, because I'm not just talking about the impact I want to have in the world. Uh, I and my team are taking action on something that matters to me and that can be positive for society, which is closing the gender investing gap. 
And we all look forward to Elvest. Please come back when that is live. We'd love to share that with our audience. Thanks so much, Sally Krawcheck. Thank you. So glad to be here. Take care. That's a wrap. Wasn't that a fantastic interview? Gosh, I love that woman. Sally Krawcheck will hopefully be back later on this year when Elvest launches. In the meantime, check out elevatenetwork.com. You can also go on Twitter at Sally Krawcheck and follow her there. All these links, including the ones that she mentioned during the show, the real real, right? I want to go on there and maybe buy some things. Uh, go to so somemoneypodcast.com and there you can get the audio, the podcast transcript, as well as the comments And of course, if you have any questions for me, the Friday episodes are dedicated to you answering your questions. To reach me, go to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh, and that is the way that we shall connect. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Make sure to share this interview with all your close friends, female friends especially. This is an important one. Thanks so much, and hope your day is so money.